Recovery Elevator, episode 61. And uh, and then I just feel like I had this touch of grace and this voice inside my head that wasn't my own, wasn't my addiction, that said, you are an alcoholic and you need... Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year and seven months. On today's podcast, we have Sarah. She's 29 years old from Minneapolis, and she's going to share how she has successfully made it to 91 days sober. Nice job, Sarah. It has now been three weeks since we launched the new Recovery Elevator community membership-based platform. And let me tell you, any doubts I had that this format would work were squashed hard and quick. Currently, there are over 100 people in this group from all over the world. We attend online webinars, online meetups. People are getting paired with accountability partners. That program is awesome. And this accountability group is private. You can't even search for it on Facebook. So for those of you out there that are worried if people can find you from the outside looking in, they can't. What is said in there, nobody on the outside can see. But I can share a little insider information about the group. There's almost 100 people with their number one goal is to get sober and stay sober. It is so supportive. I love it. So till the end of April 2016, go to recoveryelevator.com, find a community tab, and you can save $3 a month. That's $36 a year if you sign up using the promo code APRIL. Again, recoveryelevator.com, use the promo code APRIL for $3 a month savings. And now onto the topic for today, alcohol is dangerous. I got the idea for today's podcast topic from a Sober Nation blog post, and it outlined just how deadly this shit really is. Also, how benign we are to even realizing how deadly this stuff is. Listen to the similarities and not the differences. But when I was in my exploratory phases of my alcoholism, I would have read all these crazy facts and have been like, nope, not me, poor guys. And now when I read it, I realize just how close that bullet came and how lucky I am to be sitting here right now yapping into a microphone about recovery. It's friggin' awesome. And I also don't want to give any false hope. If you're sitting there thinking you're an alcoholic or you want to quit drinking and you hear these treacherous claims, these heartbreaking stats, and you realize, wow, this stuff is deadly, I'm definitely going to quit drinking because I'm afraid all this stuff is going to happen to me. Well, spoiler alert, the fear or the trepidation caused by these harrowing facts, it's only going to get you sober for a little bit of time. Fear does not get long-term sobriety or emotional sobriety for that matter. But this is kind of a reminder of if you are sober, why you're staying sober. And also, if you want to quit drinking, these are some pretty good reasons you're making the right choice. Let me say that alcohol has been around for over 10,000 years. The point of this podcast is not to have alcohol abolished. It's not an anti-alcohol slogan or campaign. If you can drink responsibly, kudos to you. But if you can't and you're like me, let's proceed. Did you know that alcohol kills more people than all the entire drugs combined? Wait a second, Paul. That can't be true. I don't hear about alcohol in the media as much as I hear about heroin, crack, cocaine, and meth. Well, just in the U.S. alone, last year... Alcohol caused 100,000 deaths. All the other drugs combined totaled 20,000. Not even close. And the reason why alcohol is so cruel is because it kills you at such a slow pace. You almost don't even know it's happening. Some paramount reasons why alcohol is just so deadly to your system physically is it destroys your liver. Yes, alcohol creates a fatty liver disease, which is the buildup of extra fat and liver cells. Almost all heavy drinkers have fatty liver disease. 
However, if you haven't gone too far down this road and you do decide to quit drinking, your liver and your body are remarkable organisms and they can eventually heal themselves. Well, you might be saying to yourself, you know, I'm in my late 20s, 30s. That stuff only happens in like your 40s and 50s and 60s, liver cirrhosis. Well, let me tell you right now, 20s. It can happen in your 20s. It can happen in your 30s. Let's talk about alcohol hepatitis. Alcohol hepatitis causes the liver to swell and become damaged. Alcohol hepatitis can be mild to severe. Up to 35% of heavy drinkers develop this alcohol hepatitis. If it is severe, it may occur suddenly and lead to serious complications, including liver failure, which would be death. And at the end of this road is not a pot of gold. It's alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver, which is scarring of the liver, which leads to poor to non-liver functioning. And this is the last stage of chronic liver disease. This blog post also touches up on a study done by Lancet, and there was a similar study done in the UK by Dr. David Nutt. Both of those studies say one thing. When combining the social and the economic and the societal factors, when determining what's the most dangerous drug in the world, alcohol is number one by far. Another reason why alcohol is so dangerous is, well, people do crazy things while drunk. Quick anecdote, I successfully, barely, tried to pet a crocodile in Bolivia while drunk, while shit-faced. Drunk people do crazy things. Bar fights, soccer riots, drunk driving. Talk about drunk driving. In 2012, 10,322 people were killed in alcohol-impaired driving crashes, accounting for nearly one-third, 31% of all traffic fatalities in the USA. Let's talk about alcohol and sexual assault. Over half of all sexual assaults recorded involve alcohol. Your chances drastically increase A, to become the victim if you're drinking, and B, to do the damage if you're drunk. Let's talk about the relationship between alcohol and violence. In almost two-thirds of spousal abuse cases, guess what's involved? Not the MasterCard bill, it's alcohol. Studies show that nearly 86% of murders involve alcohol. Another reason why it's so dangerous is going to be the STIGMA, the stigma. Alcohol use, it's celebrated. Anheuser-Busch has a budget. In previous podcasts, I've talked about my goal and my budget of eradicating the stigma surrounding alcoholism. But Anheuser-Busch has a budget of $1.2 billion a year just to spend on TV advertising alone. Scenes of their customers choosing Budweiser over their job, loved one, and hobbies were omitted from all these commercials. It baffles me. I've seen them all. I checked. They're just not there. And I could go on and on of how alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world, in my opinion. But that's not really the point of this podcast. The point of Recovery Elevator is to recover. We offer hope through community and connection, partnering sobriety-seeking individuals like myself with other like-minded people. It's that simple. So let's go ahead and do just that. Let's hear from my interviewee, Sarah. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for asking. Sarah, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, today is day number 92. Day number 92. Nice job. Congratulations. Sarah, Thank you. give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure, sure. So I live in Minneapolis, and I am 29. I'll be 30 in July. I work for a grocery store as a shift manager. I've been with them for about two and a half years, so it's a good job. And I live in an apartment with my boyfriend and our cat Albuquerque and so for fun we we're on vacation right now we just got back from the north shore of Lake Superior and did a little camping and some hiking and took the cat with us and he did a great job so 
that's mostly, you know, the kind of things we like to do, get outdoors. And I'm a creative person. I like to paint and draw and listen to lots of music. Nice. Yeah. Sarah, referencing the podcast title, Recovery Elevator, talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide that it was time to get off? Was it 92 days ago? Or is this something that you've been working on trying to quit drinking for a while? Well, so on December 21st of 2015, that was pretty much the the bottom of the elevator for me. I had certainly had some times in the past, I had a drinking career of about a decade, and I, I definitely had thought at times about quitting, and I'd had a few times where I had successfully kind of been a, a dry drunk and not really been working on any emotional sobriety, but this was the first moment in which I had the true realization that I was an alcoholic for sure, and I needed to stop drinking. So it was definitely a big turning point for me. But, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought way too much about my drinking behaviors and whether or not I was normal when I would count my drinks and pay attention to the people around me and try to, you know, not outpace them too much. And so, you know, looking back on it, I can definitely see how my behavior was always more, uh, more alcoholic than, you know, normal drinker. So... Sure. And talk to me about your drinking habits. You said your drinking career lasted about a decade. Did mm-hmm. you uh, did you drink nightly, drink during the day? And then again, did you ever put any rules in place? Like, hey, look, no drinks before 5 p.m. Yeah. So in Minnesota, you can't buy alcohol on Sundays and you can't buy it after 10 p.m. in the liquor stores. And um, with my job, I tend to work evening shifts and uh, you know, I definitely had a lot of times where it was very easy to sort of say, well, I, I deserve to have a few drinks now that I'm home because it's been, you know, such a long day or it's so late already, you know, like I'm not, I'm not drinking like an alcoholic because I didn't start at noon, but I definitely had times where I would start at noon or, sure. you know, keep drinking until 8am. So it didn't really make that much of a difference that way. But I would also try to limit by doing things like only buying a four pack of this craft beer and saying, well, that's all I'm going to have today. Because I did know, you know, rationally very early on that whatever quantity of alcohol was around, I was probably going to consume all of it or get as close to that as I could before I passed out. So, you know, so I would try to do those kinds of things. But, you know, if it was still early enough in the day and the liquor store was still open, I'd go back for seconds, you know. So, yeah, limiting never really worked that well. And in terms of, you know, trying to set rules like, oh, this time is the appropriate time to start drinking. I got to a point where I really didn't care about that either. Yeah. So if it was it was my day off, I'd, I'd start at 11 a.m. if I wanted to. Oh, definitely. I yeah, understand that 100%. And yeah. on December 21st, was it something where you were just like sick and tired of being sick and tired? Was that mm-hmm. kind of the spark into sobriety? Uh, it was to a certain extent for me, definitely. I had gotten to the point where I was definitely, you know, drinking daily or thinking about drinking every day. And I was starting to have some physical consequences to that, some increased anxiety and depression, but also physically some nervous, you know, sort of shakes and, you know, just things that I was starting to notice were kind of abnormal for my body and how sure. I felt. But really what happened, I guess, was that, you know, I my boyfriend is uh, also not a drinker and recovering. And so he had gone out of town on the 20th to visit his grandmother and see her for the holidays. And I had sort of planned ahead because as I said, Sundays were um, no liquor store days. And so the night before I had, or I had already gotten a bottle of vodka and basically the minute he was out the door, I started drinking 
even before I went to work and the whole day kind of went by as a blur of being, you know, sort of still drunk and, uh, and hung over. And I mean, it was just really, it was a bummer, but then I got home and I wanted to finish that bottle and I kept drinking and sure. I just felt so awful about myself and, you know, couldn't, I just couldn't stand my own reflection. And, uh, and then I just feel like I had this touch of grace and this voice inside my head that wasn't my own, wasn't my addiction that said, you are an alcoholic and you need to stop. And, uh, you know, I just, I felt this rush of just relief in my body after that, where it was like, okay, I can do something now. And I still finished drinking with my screwdriver. You know, I hated it at that point. It didn't, (laughs) didn't give me any more um, pleasure at at that moment, but you know, at that, at that point, like I stayed up for a couple more hours and I, you know, kind of sobered up a little bit. I started looking for podcasts and meetings and I picked a meeting that I was going to go to that uh, Monday night, which turned out now to be my, my home group uh, of AA. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful because I have felt very much like since I got on this path, since, you know, having this turning point in my life, my life has definitely been much more guided by my higher power. Sarah, there were some very big value bombs that were dropped right there. And I'm going to comment on the voice of reason. You're, mm. There was a voice of reason inside your head, and you recognized it wasn't your addiction talking, and mm-hmm. you listened. And there's another thing called a conduit. The voice of reason could have been the higher power, but you put yourself in a situation where you were open to that extra reasoning. But then that window is a short period of time because the Mm -hmm. conduit where your higher power or the voice of reason, whatever you want to call it is there and you're ready to quit. That's a short window of time. Literally it could be two hours later. You're like, Nope, I'm drinking again, or it might last two days, but it sounds like you took advantage of that time. And here we are 91 days later. So I got to say, nice job. What was it like (laughs) when you, you finish your screwdriver? You're like, this sucks. I don't like yeah. my screwdriver anymore. And, yeah. and I can comment on that because September 7th, I had made the decision to quit drinking, I think around September 4th or 3rd. And I drank mm-hmm. one more time after that. And I remember dumping it out. I'm pretty sure I dumped it out. It just it just didn't do anything for me. I'm like, look, I'm done. This is stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about what it was like after you made that decision. Well, I mean, since getting sober, I've, I've, I've felt really pretty good for the most part. I certainly had, you know, some trouble the first week with getting good sleep, you know, sort of getting sweaty and feeling weird sort of nervous energy around what my body was going through and in detoxing and, you know, a couple of just sort of strange adjustments that I that I had to go through physically, but mentally I felt very confident in the decision that I'd made and, you know, I don't remember if I've already mentioned this, but I'm also the adult child of alcoholics and so you know, for me, like when I say that during my drinking career, I would always be very conscious of what my behavior looked like. It's in very large part because I was afraid that, you know, I, I had that self-knowledge that at some point, at any point, you know, I could turn into an alcoholic, you know, or that I had already always been one, but just been in denial about it for a long time. So for me, you know, since then, it's been it's really been pretty simple. You know, the AA program has helped tremendously. The recovery elevator and similar Facebook accountability groups have really helped me to feel like I'm still on track, even if I can't get to a meeting every day. And, you know, just practicing as many of the tools that I'm 
sort of exposed to as I can every day has really helped me to, to feel confident in the decision that I made and to see the value in my experience now, you know, and, and how much better I feel about myself, people around me and how I interact with the world. Sure. And 92 days later, talk to me about your anxiety and depression, because my anxiety after I drank, it would just go through the roof. And then often after three, four days of excruciating anxiety, I would drink to make the anxiety go away. Hence commencing the downward spiral. Mm -hmm. How was your depression and anxiety with 92 days of sobriety? It's been quite a bit lifted. Uh, you know, I certainly still have low moods and I get, um, upset about things still, but my reaction overall to things is much um, sounder and I am a lot better at processing what I'm feeling and then why I'm feeling it before just simply reacting in a, you know, sort of childish way because at times it, that has been sort of my behavior in the past. And especially when I was drinking, you know, actively, I would have tremendous mood swings and very deep depressions and very, you know, high highs, you know, and, and in terms of anxiety, you know, I never had a lot of anxiety growing up, but the last couple of years I've started to experience more panic about my life and a couple of panic attacks have happened in the last couple of years and they're very, very scary. I don't know if you've had them, but I'm sure, you know, anybody listening who has, they know what I'm talking about. And I haven't had anything like that since I got sober. So overall, I feel like my mood overall is lifted to a higher level than it averaged before and that I'm much more buoyed along and don't feel such swings of emotion as I used to. Absolutely. The anxiety still comes and I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea that now that I've quit drinking and I'm sure you can agree with this, the anxiety and depression, they're still there at mm -hmm. times, mm -hmm. but we don't react the same. I, I sit there and I filter it. I digest it. I think about it and I let it be and I accept the fact that it was there. And you mentioned the panic attacks, Sarah. That was my oh shit moment. The question that I'm going to ask you later in the rapid fire round in 2007, mm -hmm. I got in a taxi cab after drinking all night and all day thinking I was thinking I had a heart attack in Spain. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, go to the hospital. I'm having a heart attack. And, you know, you get there and I, I'm calling my mom um, from Spain to America, like pumping euros in the payphone, you know, having an oh shit panic attack. Like I cannot control this. And it is terrifying. I understand that 100 percent. And Sarah, you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier the self-reflection about eight to ten podcasts ago. I did uh, an episode about the man in the mirror, and mm -hmm. I personally could not look myself in the mirror for two reasons. One, I didn't recognize the person. I'm like, is that me? I don't think that's Paul. <laughs> Number two, I was disgusted from what I saw. What do you see now when you look in the mirror, Sarah? I see a person that is growing, and I, I don't always love every aspect of myself, but I'm learning to appreciate much more of who I am. And, uh, you know, frankly, when it comes to your, your physical appearance, that does improve too. I, I definitely have, I don't, I don't know that I've lost weight, but my weight has reapportioned correctly. And so I look like myself when I see myself in the mirror, I look like me. I don't look like some sort of distorted, bloated version of myself that is deeply unhappy, you know? And Sarah, when I look in the mirror, I see somebody that is far from perfect. However, there's an inner cheerleader there, shall I say. 
And I'll look in the mirror and I'll be like, you know what? Yesterday didn't quite go as planned, but that's okay. We're accepting of it because today's a new day. All we can do is is our best. But most importantly, I'm starting to recognize that person again. And the recognition started happening instant, instantly, like week one, two weeks. Mm-hmm. Within two, three months, I was like, all right, I think I know that dude in the mirror. And we're mm-hmm. just moving forward, and it's, it's awesome. Now, mm-hmm. earlier in the interview, you mentioned you are a creative person. Talk to me mm-hmm. about painting and other outlets like that and how that's helped and assist you in recovery. Okay, yeah, well... You know, I grew up being a really creative kid. I think just about every holiday I got some kind of uh, art supply, um, sidewalk chalk or something, you know. And so I've always loved doing things with my hands and being sort of exploratory about what I can come up with from my imagination. Um, and so for those of you who are on the accountability groups, you probably saw a few, I guess it was probably a month or two ago, I posted a self-portrait that I painted. And that was something that just kind of randomly happened and wouldn't happen when I was drinking. So I definitely put aside my creative outlets in favor of drinking for for a long time, you know, and I would I would lie to myself about that a lot, too. My addiction would lie to me and I would I would think, well, you know, I'll have a couple of drinks and then I'll I'll get that access to that creative energy and I'll, I'll do something. And sometimes that was true. Sometimes I wrote some poetry or you know, did something kind of low key that way. But the most productive creative things I've ever done have always been when I'm sober. And so now that I see through that, the veil of that lie, um, I feel much more confident in what I can accomplish with my hands and with my mind. And so I'm not, I'm not actively, you know, painting or drawing or writing or anything every single day, but I do it Absolutely. I listen to myself whenever I feel that I I need to. And, you know, as quickly as I can, I try to get whatever it is that I'm feeling I need to get out, out, you know. So, but it is a huge way to access my span of emotions and, you know, sometimes process things if I'm having a low day and sometimes to, to really celebrate something if I'm feeling well. So I, you know, I highly encourage people to try, even if they don't feel like they're creative people, there are lots of great books out there too that kind of help guide you through how you can start doing that for yourself. But, you know, I, I hear people say all the time, Oh, I can't draw. And that's just not true. I mean, it's like, uh, did you ever see the music man? I don't think I did. No. Okay. Well, there's a scene in the music man, which is just, it's about this guy, Harold Hill, and he shows up in this town and starts a band and like a marching band. And he, he's telling people that they can, they should sing and they can sing. And, People are saying, no, we can't sing. And he says, singing is just sustained talking. And that's all that drawing or anything is, is just putting lines on the paper or, you know, paint on a, on a canvas and letting it do what it's going to do. Sometimes that's the most fun thing for me is just to throw something at the canvas and see what happens. Hmm. So, sorry, I kind of go off on a tangent when I start talking about being creative because I, I am very passionate about it and I, I hope someday to make it more of my life, but um, yeah, would, I'm very grateful to be accessing it more now. You just said the word, and I could hear it come through the microphone, is you are very passionate about it. And there are a lot of passions of mine that have returned in sobriety. I don't know, probably four months ago, you would not be talking so passionately about painting, right? No, I don't think I would. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my hobbies and, and skills and passions, those were crushed by good old alcohol. and. Mm-hmm creativity is an outlet that I've been exploring a lot lately because I used to be very creative and I 
it's coming back. For example, this morning from like 6 a.m. to 6.20, I played the piano. I'm no good oh, at the wow. piano. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it sounds like I'm just mashing all the keys together with like, <laughs> elbows and I don't have fingers at all. But at times, I put myself in these places where I'm in a conduit, right? Like the higher power or whatever that power is outside of myself, it allows me to grow and be creative and open ideas are flowing through me. And sometimes it sounds like Chopin and, and sometimes it sounds like <laughs> a bird crashing into a window. You just don't know. Well, you know, Paul, you got to hit that zoom or whatever it is, your little <laughs> handheld recorder and just uh, uh, noodle around on that piano and let us hear it sometime. <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. Um, yeah. And um, talk to me about the future for you. Have you, uh, have you thought more about what cool things you want to accomplish in sobriety. Let's, let's talk about some goals. Let's create some more accountability here. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, you know, AA is helpful for me. It's not for everybody. I realize, but some of the slogans are absolutely true. One day at a time and easy does it are very applicable <laughs> because I am the kind of person who will jump head first into something when I'm, you know, when I decided that I needed to get sober picked a meeting, I showed up early, you know, and I found a sponsor that night. You know, nice. it's like, I know that Go and, you. Well, and I've been very lucky, though, too, to meet the right people and to have, you know, just to, to, to keep listening and feel like I'm, my journey is guided. And so to a certain extent, it's hard for me to answer that question about the future. My goals right now are to keep being sober, to keep being mindful and appreciative of what's around me, you know, keep having an awesome, you know, now it's early spring, an awesome time going out camping and doing painting and trying to sort of be more organized. And, you know, I do definitely have goals, but I try to keep them small and manageable right now because thinking about anything too far out or too big can really overwhelm me. And I think I think at the end of the day, anything that you want to achieve, you have to work in increments towards. So, you know, it's like with your with your Peru trip, which I probably won't be able to go on. But for people who want to go and they, they say that's too expensive, you know, you always say, look at that recovery elevator app and see how much money you're saving. Yeah, and that's I'm, just an I'm estimate, $10, right? $10,000. Yeah, I think I'm at, you know, 700 or something. I haven't looked in a few days, but... But that's a, probably a low estimate depending on, you know, how heavily I've been drinking too, right? And so the point being that you can save, you can put pennies in your penny jar or save your quarters or, you know, put a dollar a week towards it. And maybe you won't have enough this year, but, you know, there's going to be other opportunities for travel. There's going to be other opportunities to go to meetups. There's going to be all kinds of stuff if you're passionate about recovery elevator. If you're passionate about meeting other sober people, there's a lot of stuff you can do to work towards that. So, but my point being that, you know, anything worth doing is going to take time and is going to be worked towards in small pieces. And, you know, and for me too, I have to keep trusting in my higher power and not make any, you know, serious ego driven plans about this is where my career is going to go, or this is where I'm going to end up living because I can't make those decisions. You know, I have to feel like I'm being guided towards that to a certain extent, you know? So it's not to say that I don't take responsibility for myself or um, try to be active in working towards things, but I just don't feel like it's the best thing, especially in early sobriety to say, yeah, man, next week I'm going to be cliff diving. And then 
you know, um, the month after that, I'll be traveling to San Diego and, you know, oh, definitely, I, definitely I, I hear you. it all sounds like fun to me. And I, you know, I, I always, I've always said like any place I've never been is a place I want to go to. Um, any food I haven't tried, I'm willing to try it. I want, you know, I want to try everything once. And if it doesn't kill me, I'll probably try it again. So, <laughs> motto. so, so I just want to keep exploring and adventuring and, and enjoying everything as it happens. Absolutely. And before we get to the rapid fire round, I got one more question for you in 92 sure. days of sobriety. Has there been a difficult moment that you've had to navigate through using the tools that you've learned or were you close to a drink in those 92 days? Very early in my sobriety, I think the biggest trigger that I had to process and try and work through was um, with my job because I have moments that are extremely stressful in my job and and then a lot of times where it's very smooth sailing. And so when I would feel those moments of intense stress, I definitely would sort of uh, think about drinking in a very realistic way. And for the last month or so, when I experienced stress, I've thought sort of amusedly like, hmm, this is where I would normally think about or be fixated on wanting to drink. But now I just don't want to do that. You know, like I, I truly do feel as though my obsession for drinking has lifted. And to me now, it's it's about really getting to the root reason of why I feel what I feel. And usually it is fear. Most recently, I've had some kind of bad news about my regarding my health and I'm still waiting for a new procedure to get scheduled so that I can find out exactly what's happening mm -hmm. so that I can get a roadmap going in terms of what needs to be done with that if anything or hopefully just get a clean bill of health so but it's the unknown factor that makes me most afraid and and then causes me to have that mental tailspin of what if it goes to this? What if it happens like this? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if? Yeah. And so I, I did have to feel those feelings and just give myself a few hours to just feel really sad and scared. And since then, I've just tried to, you know, talk to people who I trust and ask for the, their advice and their guidance and their support. And then um, beyond that, to just keep praying and asking for guidance and trusting that whatever happens is what needs to happen in my life right now. Sarah, those fears are terrifying. And I can understand with full certainty that those unknowns with your health issues, and I'm sorry you're having to go through that, those are bringing a lot of fear into your life, I'm sure. And there's a lot of uncertainty. But if there is one thing that I do know for 100% certainty, it's that a drink won't make any of that better. And we just can't 100% true. Yeah, yep. we can never forget that. And Sarah, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Right on. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Number one, Sarah, what was your worst memory from drinking? All right. Well, I got a couple of them. Number one was probably when very early in my drinking career when I ended up uh, tripping on the way home from a party on uh, off the college campus, walking back to the campus. Cops happened to be driving by at the time, and I got a minor. Um, <laughs> my only run-in with the police when it uh, – well, my only run-in with the police, period. It just happened to be related to alcohol. Go figure. And number two is probably back when I was still living with my mother and – I got really blitzed on a daily basis and was trying to hold down a job, doing a terrible job of that. But at one point, I had gone into the basement uh, laundry room of her building 
gotten really drunk and passed out on the couch there. And it was probably, you know, sometime in the afternoon when she eventually came down, found me and was saying, what the fuck are you doing? You know? So that really probably should have been my bottom, but (laughs) took a few more years from that. So sure. Sarah, we've all heard the aha moments when somebody thinks of a brilliant idea. Have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating that, okay, maybe I am an alcoholic? Yeah, definitely. And I've had a few. I mean, I've had some times where I was hiding my drinking really terribly and really hurting people around me. And those moments, if if I'd come out of my alcoholic stupor a little more, would have been much more oh shit moments than they were. But definitely for me, the moment where, you know, I had planned ahead to get drunk just because, you know, I was going to be home alone and I was going to be lonely and, you know, realizing that I had no tools to process my emotions or to deal with myself, to be alone with myself, that was definitely the oh shit moment and feeling, feeling everything in my body and knowing that I was going to fall apart pretty quickly if I kept going down the path I was, that was, that was the biggest oh shit moment for me. And Sarah, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Well, as as the old folks like to say in AA, it's keep coming back. So keep showing up, keep being present. I mean, that there's a lot involved with that. And I'm going to keep working with my sponsor and working the 12 steps of the AA program and also being really present with the accountability groups online that has really been integral to my sobriety. And if I am able to provide any service or support to other people by doing that, that's a huge thing for me. And, you know, in the long-term plan, I hope that I can get to a, a place where I can sponsor other people and keep reaching out to other people who are suffering with alcoholism and let them know that they're not alone because this is a communal disease. And Sarah, what's your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource is a, sort of a general, a general sense that you have to be with other people, that isolation is the killer, you know, it's, it feeds our our addictions. And so other people, other addicts are my bread and butter, whether it's through accountability groups, you know, absolutely what the, what you've created with recovery elevator has been so important for my sobriety. And for a lot of people showing up to meetings with AA, calling people, if I, I feel like I need to, and picking up the phone when somebody else calls me too. So that's it. Other people. Other other addicts. I love it. And Sarah, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received? Probably a, a toss-up between sometimes you just have to shut up and listen, which I think was absolutely applicable. If I hadn't just listened to that other voice, I wouldn't be here now. And to just be easy on yourself. Be gentle. You know, that's one of the things that my boyfriend told me right away when when I revealed to him that I was an alcoholic and that I needed to start working a program, he said, just be gentle with yourself, be kind to yourself, understand that this takes a long time and it's not an overnight switcheroo. You know, you have to have to take, take some time with it and walk this walk for a while before you really are going to be okay with it, you know? And that's true. I mean, you always have to have to be kind to yourself. Absolutely. And Sarah, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober? Well, if you're thinking about getting sober, I would recommend doing it. Um, <laughs> I, that sounds, sounds, I like really, it. Okay. So, sounds really simple. It's not. And, uh, you know, that's another saying. It's, it's always simple. It's not always easy. 
But if, if you question whether or not you're an alcoholic to the degree that I did on a regular basis, whether or not I was drinking, then you probably have some alcoholic tendencies at the least. And if, if you really truly feel like it's not serving you, if it's doing more harm than good, then the best thing you can do is reach out to another person who has gone through this and who has recovered and talk to them and listen for those similarities and see how much you really do relate. Because if you relate to really any degree, you probably are an alcoholic. And it's always up to you to decide that. So you have to walk through that door. Absolutely. And before we depart, Sarah, give listeners your own personal you might be an alcoholic if line. Well, since I just told that story, I'll say that you might be an alcoholic if you pass out in a laundry room in your mother's apartment building. Oh, I love it. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much for helping me stay sober today. Thanks for joining us. Great stuff from Sarah. And before we get into a book review, yep, a book review, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. Let me tell you, being hungover on a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it. RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA, and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text Sober Travel No Space to 44222. Again, text Sober Travel without a space to 44222. One perk about doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is authors would like me to review their book. And in response to the email, I'll say I'd love to, but if I don't like it, that's also what I need to portray. Fortunately, that's not really the case with the Staying Sober Handbook by Howard P. Goodman. I've got a stack of eight books on my desk, so I didn't read this one page by page, but I took a very long look at it and read probably half of it. Staying Sober Handbook, it's pretty good. In fact, it's real good. I tell myself and others to listen to the similarities, not the differences. This book is broad. It's made for all addicts and alcoholics. But still, if you focus on the similarities and not the differences, you've got a lot in common with somebody who has a cocaine addiction or a meth addiction. It's very easy for my disease to say, like, look, we can just breeze past this chapter because we never did crack cocaine. But yeah, I would definitely recommend this book, and you can find a link to it on Amazon on the recoveryelevator.com website, show notes, episode 61. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down, got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs>